Good morning. It's good to see you this morning. I hope all is well with you. If, if you're here visiting with us, I want you to know how glad we are that you're here with us. And I hope that you've been uh, warmly received. And I want you to know that uh, it's good to have you with us. It's good when we're together as a family of faith to be able to worship the Lord and celebrate the goodness of uh, Him through His Son, Jesus, towards us. I, I want to talk to you for a few minutes before we uh, go any further in this service. I want you to, to think about what we've been through the last four weeks. We're going to finish our series today uh, called New Year's Revolution. And what we've done is we've talked about very difficult issues that I feel are issues that uh, many of uh, us in this very fellowship suffer with. Uh, we talked about bitterness. We talked about how bitterness comes into our life and it, it begins to rob us of our joy and, and it, it becomes a thief that the enemy uses to cause such uh, pain and suffering and that we amass a debt in our heart that the people that we're bitter at could never pay no matter what happened. We talked about fear. We talked about how fear is, is a, a, a thief that steals away our future, that we, we're constantly worried about things that haven't even happened yet, and, and how the Lord has not given us a spirit of fear. And, and what a, a trust issue that is in our hearts with the Lord when we're, when we're fearful and we're afraid and how it robs us of so many opportunities in our life. And then two weeks ago, we, we talked about lust. It was a difficult Sunday morning. We talked about how lust is uh, such a, uh, a horrendous thief in the Christian life because it, it operates in, in such a secret manner. It's an addiction that oftentimes is, goes unnoticed for, for long periods of time because uh, it's, uh, when, when people start succumbing to lust, it's, it's unknown, even sometimes to the people that are closest to them for months and months, sometimes even years. And so the damage that it causes in our life is so uh, great. And there's so much shame associated with that. And if you remember that morning, that was a difficult morning. If you remember, um, it's probably the most empty I've ever seen. This altar was the morning we talked about lust. Wasn't that interesting? I guess that's not our problem. I guess pride is. <laughs> Moving right along last week as if we hadn't done enough damage. We talked about generosity. We talked about how the Lord has given us a command that as His children we're to be generous and we are to prioritize in our life the, the care of those who are in need around us and first and foremost our brothers and sisters in Christ and, and just really the, the tragedy that it is uh, uh, of, a, of a person who names the name of Christ who's not, who's not generous after all that they uh, say that they've received and, and it, it really is a, a great indicator of what's going on in the heart of an individual. And so we talked about these four difficult things and we've sort of laid these out across us. And, and I've seen in your faces over these last four weeks, I've seen, the, I've seen the response in your eyes and in your countenance. I know that many of you in here have, have responded to these things in your heart and God's spoken to you and you've, you've felt convicted. And today is a, is a day where I want to 
I want to help all of us. I want to help you, especially those of you that are that are struggling with these or other issues. I want to help you understand something that merely realizing that there's something wrong inside of you, merely acknowledging the fact that God's dealing with you about something is not going to lead to a solution. That you can't go forward in your own strength. That that's not the pathway to freedom. It's not gritting your teeth and trying harder. It just simply won't work. And it's going to land you right back where you are. I want you to think about Adam and Eve in the Garden of Eden. I want you to imagine, if you can, it's such a foreign concept to us. I think the reason so many people struggle with uh, the first five or six chapters of Genesis is because it just seems so hard for us to, to pull together something that started out too good to really even be true and then so quickly came into something so bad we can't even believe it. But you see, Adam and Eve come into perfection. They're, they're in a perfect, intimate relationship with God. They, they are living in, in perfect fellowship with Him. They, they, they just know. They, they intrinsically know that they're right with the world, that things are just right. And in Genesis 3, when sin enters the world, immediately... Immediately they know that they're flawed, that they're broken. Immediately they realize that they're naked and they're ashamed. And sin immediately brings about a response of, I am not right. There's something wrong with me. There's something wrong with me and the world in which I have been created to to live in. Because sin brings with it the law, it brings with it the, the curse of we're out of sync with what we're supposed to be. And you see, we're born into that fallen world. And so every day that we have lived our life apart from Christ, however many days it was for you between the time you were born and the, the time you were born again, or if you're yet to be born again, then every day of your life has been lived in a world that cries out to you, you're flawed. You're, you're not enough. You see, the world is, is constantly telling us that we're not smart enough. We're not skinny enough. We're not successful enough. We're not wealthy enough. We're not, you fill in the blank. And we, we, we struggle because we look around and there's, there's, there's always on one hand, the person that we can look to and say that, well, we're doing better than that person. But then as soon as our, our heart fills up with this false sense of security and pride, we can turn around and there's someone else who's doing far better than we're doing. And we're like a ping pong ball going back and forth, trying to find acceptance, trying to find our place. And you see, here's my concern for us as a people. My concern is that there are people maybe here this morning and you wake up every day and you, you, you go out into a world that looks to, to tear you down. It looks to tell you all the things that you're not. And you, you come to church on Sundays and, and you, you hear a sermon and you go to Sunday school and, you know, you participate in church things. But you see, the world is constantly barraging us with this message that we're not good enough. 
We're not good enough. We're not acceptable. We haven't met the grade. And so whether it's the billboards or the TVs or the newspaper or the people you work with or your neighborhood or whatever it is, there's a million different messages saying you're just not enough. You're just not enough. And you see, I think to myself, I think, God, I, I remember what that feels like. I remember that feeling of just thinking, No matter what I do, it's not enough. I'm just never going to meet the. I'm never going to meet the standard. It never goes away. You see that thing that starts in junior high when you got to figure out what the right shoes are to have, or everyone's going to make fun of you. It just. It's not that it ends at some point. You don't mature out of it. It just keeps going, and really, it just becomes bigger. And then you become more and more spiritual. You get more and more knowledge about God. But what does it yield you if you don't have a hold of the most important thing? You see, here's what I'm trying to say. What happens to a person who's struggling with bitterness, who's ate up with fear, who's hiding secret sin, maybe lust, pornography, who's not a generous person because their life is consumed with materialism and the fleeting joys of this world. What happens to that person? God convicts their heart. And they don't pick up their Scripture. You see, the only way I know that I'm okay, the only way that I know that I'm accepted is by waking up and trying to get through whatever mundane task. You see, see, there are days when, when, I, when I hurt so bad in my heart that brushing my teeth, taking a shower, eating breakfast are all obstacles between me and getting to my Scripture. Because I'm so hurt in my heart. I need to get to the Bible so bad because the Bible's the only thing that says, Tony, it's the only thing that screams to me in a world of you can't meet the grade. And it says you have not been redeemed by corruptible things like silver and like gold. That the you, you weren't changed from the horrible behavior that you inherited from your fathers. From anything other than the blood of Christ that was sacrificed on your behalf as a lamb with no blemish and no spot, perfect. You see, the Scripture is the only thing that says, hey, you don't have to, you don't have to perform for me You don't have to live up for me. You don't have to be the smartest and the best. I love you for you. Because when I look at you, I see my son. What? 
Where do you get your encouragement? I just want us this morning, before we go any further in this service, I just want us to stop for a moment. Just put down everything that is clamoring for your attention. Just put it down and just be still. And say, God, what does it mean to be redeemed? Why is it that so many days of my life don't feel like I'm redeemed? Help me understand, Lord. Redeemed. Redeemed. What does that mean? Father, I pray right now that you'll help us as a people to, Lord, not come in some false humility before you, but God, to to bow our heads and to to lift our heart to heaven and say, God, if you are the God you declare you are in Scripture, if you have done what you said you have done, Lord, if you have redeemed us by the incorruptible, indestructible, undefiled, perfect sacrifice of your Son, then what does that mean today? What does that mean for for my brother or my sister who are here who struggle to feel worthy. They struggle to feel accepted. They struggle to find their way. Lord, remind us of who we are. Help us to see, Lord, What you've done, we're redeemed in Jesus' name. Amen. Galatians chapter 2, page 1338 on the Pew Bible in front of you. If you didn't bring a copy of Scripture, you can just turn to that page and follow along with us. want us to... I want us to use Scripture this morning to teach us, to show us how to look in a new mirror, how to deal with these challenges that we face in our heart, how to reconcile these, these hard, convicting situations that we find ourselves in when, when God pushes us and presses us about our lives. Because there's a great danger there's a great danger of slipping into this, this self-help mode, this, this self-sufficiency place that will never yield. It will never yield. Never. Deeds will never, ever, ever get you where you desire to go. Let's pray and ask God to help us this morning. Father, I thank you for your scripture. And Lord, I ask you now that you'll make it come alive in our hearts, God, and that you will help us, Lord, to to recognize and realize the glorious life of the redeemed. And Father, what you have done 
And what does that mean today? How do we move forward in the struggles that we're facing, Lord? Will you help us, please? Take your perfect word and implant it in our hearts. Give us ears to hear that we might glorify you in and through it. In Jesus' name, amen. And when we get to Galatians chapter 2, you have to understand what's going on. Paul uh, has come to Galatia and what he's found is that the Judaizers are busy working. They're working in the church that he's planted and there's there's trouble. Uh, Peter is there. Barnabas is there. The Christian leaders are there. And what's happened is these Judaizers have begun to convince people that uh, the Gentiles, the non-Jews that have come to Christ, uh, just placing their faith in Christ is not enough. That they have to, they have to conform to the ceremonial laws of Judaism. And so any time that you hear Jesus plus something, you got up, there's a problem. Anytime that, that, that faith in Christ is not enough, that it's not, it's not through faith by grace, but that you have to work, you have to earn, you have to do, then there's a problem. That the doing is a result of genuine faith. It's not what brings about genuine faith. And so Paul here confronts Peter for his hypocrisy. What he would do is he was, he was, he would be amongst the Gentiles and he would eat with the Gentile believers and he would, uh, you know, spend time with them. And then when the, when the Jews, when the Judaizers came to Galatia, then he would distance himself from them and he would act like he was a Jew. And Paul says, no, you're a Christian. You act like a Christian. And so that's the, context of where we are. We're going to begin reading in verse 14. Galatians chapter 2, verse 14. So Paul says, when I saw that they were not straightforward about the truth of the gospel, I said to Peter before them all, if you being a Jew live in a manner of Gentiles as not as the Jews, why do you compel Gentiles to live as Jews? We who are Jews by nature are not sinners of the Gentiles, knowing that a man is not justified by works of the law, but by faith in Jesus Christ. Even we have believed in Jesus Christ, that we might be justified by faith in Christ and not by works of the law. For by works of the law, no flesh shall be justified. Verse 17. But if we, if, but if while we seek to be justified by Christ, we ourselves are found sinners, is Christ therefore a minister of sin? Certainly not. For if I build again those things which I destroyed, I make myself a transgressor. For I, through the law, died to the law that I might live to God. I have been crucified with Christ. It is no longer I who live, but Christ lives in me. And the life which I now live in the flesh, I live by faith in the Son of God who loved me and gave himself for me. I do not set aside the grace of God. For if righteousness comes through the law, then Christ died in vain. That is a tremendous theological statement that Paul just made there. He, he basically just obliterated all of the things that most commonly fracture our lives and cause us to stumble and thwart our growth in Christ. And I just I want to begin with verse 15 and just kind of take some of this apart and, 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 and look at what Paul is saying. 
He says now in verse 15, let's look at this. He says, If we who are Jews by nature and not sinners of the Gentiles, knowing that a man is not justified by works of the law, but by faith in Jesus Christ, even we, he says, have believed in Jesus Christ, that we might be justified by faith in Christ and not by works of the law. For by the works of the law, no flesh shall shall be justified. That no one is ever going to be justified by works. And what Paul is saying is is that the law functions like an x-ray machine. The law is useful for diagnosis. It shows what's going on inside, but it is not a cure. The law simply shows the problem. It it exhibits what is broken, what is wrong. It, It reveals the fracture, but it has no ability to reset the bone. Understand that. The law is meant to expose all of our shortcomings and our failures. The law is the reason why we, we feel as if we're not enough and we're unworthy is because we are born unto the law. When we enter into this world, we are under the condemnation of the law. The law is an unattainable place that we can never achieve. God's law is too high for anyone any time, any place to ever live up to, which is exactly why Jesus came to earth and dwelt among us, is because He's the only one that could live up to the demands of the law. Paul says in Romans chapter 3, For by works of the law no human being will be justified in His sight, since through the law comes knowledge of sin. That's what it does. You see, when we fall into legalistic tendencies, when we try to earn God's approval and earn God's love, what we're doing is we are responding to what our heart knows to be true, what our soul knows to be true, and that is that we are lacking righteousness. But we have been designed to desire righteousness. And so we don't know how to get righteousness. And so what we do is we try to fulfill it by doing things that we think will bring about righteousness. And Paul is declaring, no, that's false, that's wrong. And what I see today is that there's a multitude of people that understand this here, but don't have any knowledge of it here. The law merely makes us conscious of what's there, but it cannot rescue us from sin. The law is like a mirror. It's like a mirror. It, when you look into the law, it reveals to you what you really look like but it can't make you better looking. It can't fix what you see. You see, before the law... See, I don't know how this worked for you. I only know how this worked for me. It worked in the same way, just different circumstances. But basically at 25 years old, it was as if for 25 years of my life I had just convinced myself that I was a good person. I convinced myself that of what I looked like if I were to look in a mirror, but I'd never looked in a mirror. I've never seen a true reflection of myself. And so I just convinced myself that I was a person. And for 25 years, I believed that. And it took 25 years to mold that and shape that. And, and it was all of the people who had, who had encouraged me. It was all the people who had discouraged me. It was all the experiences of my life. The same way it was for you. And at some point in time, after the culmination of all these various things came together, and you believed in your heart that you were a person... 
that looked a certain way and did certain things and had certain gifts and had certain talents and so on and so forth. And then for the very first time, I look into the mirror of the law and I realize how horrendous I am. And that I had been misleading myself. And that I was not who I thought I was. But the law couldn't fix any of that. It just revealed it. And so then I'm left. Where's rescue? Paul says in the next verse, verse 16. Knowing that a man is not justified by works of the law, but by faith in Jesus Christ. He says, when you look in this mirror and you see yourself for who you are and you recognize all that you've done, you realize the the gravity and the heinousness of your sin and you, you think, oh no, what do I do now? Paul says, you turn and by faith in Jesus Christ, he says, that's where we can find justification, not by works of the law. So he introduces us to this concept of being justified. Justified is a legal term. It means to be declared not guilty. It's, it's the opposite of condemnation. Justification and condemnation are two polar opposites. Condemnation is to declare someone guilty. The Bible says there's therefore now no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. Because the Lord says those who are mine have been justified. There's no condemnation. It's been stripped away. They've been declared not guilty. You see, our standing before Christ in justification is as if we possess the same standing as Jesus Christ has to His Father. That in justification, it's as if we we come before the Father standing in the same place as Jesus Christ when He looks down at His beloved Son and He says, in you I'm well pleased. That's the magnitude of justification. It means that a person like me, see, I didn't look in your mirror. And I hope it was a little easier for you than it was for me. But when I looked in the mirror and when I saw for the very first time who I truly was. The idea that I could somehow, some way, someday stand before this holy God who had revealed to me all of my sin and that He would look down at me and say, this is my beloved Son in whom I'm well pleased. It just seemed utterly impossible. How could that be? That's the the magnificence of justification. You see, in justification, God doesn't... He doesn't change what happened. What changes is His view of what happened. You see, God doesn't... God doesn't go back in time and undo everything that we've done. He covers it. So when He looks at it, He doesn't see it because it's covered by the blood of His Son. And so when you you start to, to open your heart up to the reality of 
there's a way to be justified by God through faith. You see, he says that it's by faith in Jesus Christ. That little Greek preposition, in, it's ace. It really means into. It means to, to be within. So your faith is into Jesus Christ. This isn't just some fleeting, you know, statement of, oh, yes, I, I have faith in Jesus Christ. I believe Jesus Christ was, was God. No, no, no. This is faith into. This is taking your faith and putting it inside the compartment of Jesus Christ, saying that all that I am is in this now, which means it can't be in this and somewhere else. If it's in this, it's not somewhere else. And if it's somewhere else, it's not in this. So he goes on in verse 17. He says, but if if we seek to be justified by Christ, we ourselves also are found sinners. Is Christ therefore a minister of sin? And when he says certainly not, that's just the best we can do with English translation. That is the strongest negative that Paul had at his disposal. You see, the trap, this is what Paul's saying in verse 17. He's saying that the trap that's laid out for us is that we, we, we come to this place where we look in the mirror of the law and we see ourselves for who we are and then we, we, we respond to this truth that we can take our faith and, and place it into Christ and be justified. And it's this wonderful freeing moment of, of just gratitude and jubilation over what seemed like it could never be reconciled had now been fixed. But then we slowly work our way back to our old way of living. We gradually defect from what we once knew to be so true. And we just simply replace the legalism of our life pre-Christ with a brand new set of things on our checklist that have to be done that make us good or acceptable. And so, again, we start traveling down the same path which we were on. And so what Paul is saying, if Christ came to bring liberty, if that's what He came, if, if... if He came to liberate us and we declare our allegiance and justification in Him, but we live as if we're slaves to the law, then what we do is we make Christ a minister of sin. That what we do is we we blaspheme the very sacrifice of the Son of God. You see, if we say on one hand, That all of our sin is forgiven. That all of our past, present, and future sin is forgiven. But we live as if we're still bound by the law. If our life is directed and motivated by duty and not delight. If when I was talking earlier, and I was talking about those days when when I... When I wake up and I just, all I can think about is the obstacles. It's as if when I get into my truck and I drive up to my office, that it takes forever, that I get every light turns red, every reason to stop me, because all I want to do is get there. All I want to do is get to it. 
All I want to do is find my place. I want to hear the voice that says the truth. And if when I say that, what you think about is how much you don't want to do that. And you think about how you grit your teeth and you get up. And before you read your scripture, you think about what other people are going to think because you do or don't read it. You're missing the whole point. If it's some sort of laborious task, something is wrong. Don't you see? This is what is killing Christianity. Is that people live like slaves. And all of the bars have been knocked down. Every door has been opened. All the freedom and glory that you could ever possess is freely given. And we live for the clamor of our occupation and our bills. You see, our demands, you know why? Because the Scripture doesn't say... Today you get a promotion. Today you've, you've, you've earned your way up. Today, today you have performed your way into a place of prominence. Today, today all your friends think you're a great mom. Today everyone who knows you just thinks you're fantastic. And we let the, we let the voices of slavery override The megaphone of truth that's right in front of us. And we make Christ a minister of sin. Don't feel bad. Paul's talking to Peter. He's talking to Peter. We're only 20 some odd years from the death of Christ on the cross. And we're already here. You're not alone. It has plagued God's people from the very beginning. But the solution is not a bunch of head knowledge about things. It's a heart knowledge of who you are and what God has done. Look at what he says in verse 18. For for if I build again those things which I destroy, I make myself a transgressor. You see, again, Paul brings this this terminology when he says build again. That means to, to give validation to. In other words, the things that have been obliterated at salvation, you then go scrambling around picking up all the pieces of all the broken things that that Christ obliterated in your life and you start rebuilding them like little blocks around your life to make yourself feel safe and, and good and wonderful. Do you know why? Because it's easy to do because all the people in your life that were saying something to you before Christ are still saying the same thing and you've spent your whole life learning to listen to those voices. See, there's people in here today, I know I love you. And your mom or your dad has spent your entire lifetime telling you how much you're not. 
And that you, you cannot achieve and you cannot build up and you, you're never gonna amount. And you know what? It's, it's mounted up on top of you and now you're, you're grown and maybe they're dead and gone and you've moved past and you got your own family and you still hear the voice. And you picked up all the pieces and, and reconstructed the Legos around you. And Christ obliterated that at salvation. He tore that down. He said, you are now my son. You are now my daughter. From this point forward, the voice that you hear from me is the most important voice in your life. This voice overrides all other voices. I wonder sometimes. I wonder sometimes when I pray for you. I wonder what you picture when you pray. What's the expression on God's face when you're praying? Is he smiling? Or is there a scowl on his face of disapproval and disappointment? Paul says in verse 19, For I through the law, I died. I died to the law that I might live to God. That you see in justification, in this, in this legal declaration, there is a relational invitation. That it's not just a declaration. It's not just a stamp of not guilty upon the, the, the ledger of your sin. But it's a relational invitation to be a part of, of, of Him and Him to be you. It's as if God says that in justification, in salvation, I'm going to ensure through my Son, Jesus Christ, that you possess everything that you profess. That's salvation. That's what it is. It's not up to you. That you didn't have to do a certain thing a certain way. He says, no, no, that's me. I've got that. I will ensure that that happens according to plan. You see, once you became God's son or God's daughter, you were freed from the law. You were freed from that. You were made free. You don't get saved in stages. There's not... There's not things that you achieve within salvation. It doesn't work like that. You're, this is why the Scripture uses specific terminology so that you can't mix this up. And yet we have entire denominations that can't figure this out. You're either dead or you're alive. No one is in the middle. Do you understand that? You're dead or you're alive. That's why we're using dead or alive terminology. Because if he used anything else, we'd figure out a way to be in the middle. That, well, you first get saved and you get this. And then you get saved and you get this. And then you, well, I don't know what that is. At what point, all I want to know is one thing. Where am I dead and where am I alive? That's all I want to know. And the Bible says that if you're dead, you're totally dead. And if you're alive, you're completely alive. And that there's no middle. But you can be alive and live as if you're dead. And this is what Paul is dealing with here. 
Consider, Jesus, He never loved a person who deserved it. Never. Never. Every person He's ever loved was undeserving. Equally. Doesn't matter what you've done. You're as undeserving as anyone else. There's no finger you can point because you have fallen short all the way as everyone else has. And so when you stand in the the courtroom at salvation, you come to the foot of the cross after looking in the mirror, realizing who you are, you come into the courtroom of the high judge in the holy court of the only one who matters, the one who everything that the law revealed to you was against him. You might have thought that people were against you and you were against them, but you were wrong, that all of that was against him. He's the one that created everything you know, everything about you. All your sin has been against that judge personally. You walk into his courtroom, you're utterly and completely guilty. You you are guilty is charged. There's no sense in having any witnesses. There's no sense in calling somebody to to testify on your behalf. They've got proof. It's done. You're hopeless. You walk into the court. You look at the judge. And you say, Your Honor, I'm guilty. And before he stamps down the decree on your life, he stands up from behind the bench. He walks down around. He takes off. His courtroom closed. He walks over to you and he embraces you. And he says, not only are you forgiven, but I adopt you into my family. You're my son. You're my daughter. You're cleansed and washed and free. See, this is justification. That's what happens when someone's saved. How does that take the smile off your face? Where where does that become really good, but something else is just stealing your joy? You see what I'm saying? How? What compares to that? What competes with that? What's in the same galaxy as that? So then he gets to the pinnacle at verse 20. And he said, I've been crucified with Christ. It's no longer I who live, but Christ lives within me. He says, the life that I now live in the flesh. You see, he's alive today and they're looking at him in the flesh, just like you're looking at me. And see, here's the problem. Is that what you need to understand is that we're in the same boat. If you are a son or daughter of the Lord Jesus this morning, then then you're my brother, my sister. We woke up this morning in this fleshly suit that's been broken and defiled by sin, but that harbors within it the justified Spirit of God that has adopted me into His family. And so I have to exist in the same broken world that shouts at me every day that I'm not enough but with a spirit inside of me that's declaring my worthiness because of his presence. You see? And so he's explaining, he's saying, it's, it's this life that I now live in the flesh as I see you and you see me. But I live it by faith in the Son of God. Don't you see? How do you live it? Well, see, if you, 
If you, if you don't, the only way you're going to live it with faith into the Son of God is that you're going to have to meditate and dwell daily on what the gospel truly is. You're going to have to soak it into your bones constantly. If you don't swim in an ocean of the gospel every single day, you're going to get ripped apart by the sharks of this world. Listen to me. I'm telling you, you, a Sunday morning sermon's not enough. It won't work. You gotta be reminded every single day, what is the gospel? You gotta live your life in the flesh by faith in Jesus Christ. Every day. So let me give you some things Paul tells us. These, these are for me. They're mine. And I'll share them with you this morning. But they're mine. I want you to know that. I'm I'm not talking to you this morning. I'm talking to me. I sit in a room every single day. Surrounded. By hundreds and hundreds of books. Written by hundreds and hundreds of people who are smarter than I'll ever be. Who have done more than I'll ever do. Who on the pages of their books get everything right. And if I don't preach the gospel to myself on a daily basis, if I don't remind myself of what I'm about to tell you, then I'll just sink into the pothole of failure and unworthiness and I'll make Christ the minister of sin in my life. So these are mine. Number one, I have a new identity. I think you should say that this morning. I think you should say right now, out loud, I have a new identity. You need to say that to yourself. When you, when you walk into the, your, your job tomorrow morning, when you, when, you, when you pick up the phone and you see on caller ID, it's the person who's always beating you down and running you down. Before you pick up the phone, before you walk in the door, you need to say to yourself, I have a new identity. He says in verse 20, I've been crucified with Christ. That's a declaration of I have a new identity at salvation. I died. I I didn't just die, but I was crucified. I was crucified with Christ. The old me perished. The the slave to guilt and shame. The, The one who could never overcome. Who could never be good enough. Who could never achieve enough. Who could never do right enough was crucified with Christ and it gave way to freedom. It it yielded way to intimacy with God. And in that crucifixion, defeat gave way to victory. Fear was overwhelmed through faith and guilt was annihilated by grace. The second thing is that I have a new ability. You need to say that this morning. I have a new ability. You have a new ability. Don't, don't be, this is not the time to be shy. You have a new ability. 
This is true for you. You have a new ability. He says, it's no longer I who live, but Christ who lives in me. Praise God. The pressure's off, man. I don't have to do it anymore. It's Christ in me. That is the greatest news that a type A nutcase like me could ever hear. I mean, maybe maybe you're the kind of person who just, you know... You Eeyore through life and, you know, you, you can just lay in bed till noon and, and if everything's just moving at, 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 you know, the, a snail's pace, you're fine, but that ain't me. That's not who I am. I gotta go all the time. I gotta move all the time. And this is what I need to know so desperately every day. I have a new ability. I'm not waking up in my own strength and pressing forward in all my ability. Paul says in Romans 6, he says, Therefore we were buried with Him through baptism into death. And just as Christ was raised from the dead by the glory of the Father, even so we also should walk in newness of life. That in crucifixion there's resurrection. And that we have been resurrected to newness of life. That is so good. You see, it's it's not that that I, that I gave up everything that I am. I didn't come to salvation and just give up all, everything that I am in the hope, in the, in the hope that maybe someday Christ would rescue me. That's not how this works. It's not like you get saved and then you just exist until heaven comes. That would just be ridiculous. If that were the case, we'd all be there right now. Why are we here? Don't you ever ask yourself that? God, why am I here? I'm a sojourner. I'm a pilgrim. I'm not in my, I'm an alien in this world. Why? Why? You better know why. You better have a grip on why. You better know this morning. Why are you here? What is the purpose of your presence? Why are you breathing God's air right now? Why? And you say, well, I don't know. I can't do this and I can't. There you go. Right there. If you just immediately go into excuses, because you think I'm saying, because why are you not great like who, like me? No. Because I'm saying, why am I not great like him? And then the next one's the next one, the next one. That, you're never gonna win. I'm saying, why are you here, ma'am? Why are you here, elderly person? Why are you here, teenager? Why are you here? Why are you here, didn't graduate from high school? Why are you here, I've had an abortion? Why are you here, I was a drug addict? Why are you here, I've got children out of wedlock? Why are you here? Are you telling me that all these voices that are condemning all the things you've done are overriding what the Bible, somehow the Bible's not true for you because of who, what you've done? Don't you see where this goes? You have a new ability. You see, when I come to the cross, when you come to the cross, we lay down all that we are. Not in the hope that one day we're going to be rescued. That's not what it is. It's not that, that I hope He doesn't forget me. I hope I live up to it. I hope this works out. I hope God doesn't forget me. No. When it was all laid at the cross... He didn't say, you don't have to hope another second. You don't have to wait for me to rescue you. I'm coming inside of you. I'm putting my spirit in you. I'm going to live in you. You don't have to do it anymore. I'm going to do it in you. 
Number three, I have a new authority. The Scripture says, And this life which I now live in the flesh, I live by faith in the Son of God. Paul declares authority. He's declaring the authority that he has to live by faith in the Son of God. That what happens when a person does that? The Christian life is not trying to, to, to figure out how to live a life that honors God. That is not true. The Christian life is first and foremost. It is primarily about trusting Christ who lives in us to live for us. Now think with me for a moment. You know me well enough to know that I'll be the first one to tell you that there's so many things you need to know. There's so many things you need to know. But don't leapfrog over in this quest for knowing things about God. Don't leapfrog over the primary reality of the gospel That it is trust in Christ who is in us to live for us that is the ability that we now have to live. He lives for you. He is within you. And you say, well, I don't, I don't see that. I don't feel, you know why that is? Because you wake up every day and crucify the spirit to walk in the flesh. Did I lose anybody here? When you make decisions, when you decide that you're going to listen to the voices on the outside instead of the voice of God, you crucify the Spirit to walk in the flesh instead of the other way around. That when you wake up, Lord, I go today in the power of You that's within me. I trust You. You see, that, that's the trick. That's the snag. Because I think there'd be a whole lot of head bobbing right on. Go, Pastor. But don't, don't miss the word trust. I trust God to live through me. That means I yield myself to what He says, you see, you you look around the Christian landscape today and you find scores of people, scores of people who are spending boatloads of time, money and resources trying to learn all these things about God. And on the outside, it looks good. But when you delve inside their lives, what you find is that it's all a big ruse. It's a big charade. And the charade is, is that. In your heart of hearts, you know that you want knowledge about God so that you can navigate your way through God because the more you know about God, the more you can figure out what you're going to do. And so here's the way to end all that. Because I want you to know lots about God. But before you endeavor to swim deeply in the knowledge of God, always ask this important question. Lord, am I obeying what I already know about you? Why don't you open the scripture tomorrow? And before you start reading it, 
before you start looking for whatever fruity flavored candy you want on whatever page it is, say, God, am I obeying what I already know to be true? Am I trusting you to live through me? Or am I trying to do this in my own ability? Paul says, I have a new authority. You see, really, it's because we we fear that God is going to let us down. It's not that He's going to it's not that He's going to fail to get us to heaven. That's not it. it. It's not that He's going to somehow His His divinity and His perfection is going to going to fail. No, no, we're we're not there. But with regards to us personally. You see, we think so many times that we're going through a circumstance and a situation. And so it's complicated. And, and children are involved. And emotions are involved. And finances are involved. And all these things are involved. And we don't think God can handle all those things. We don't think God knows the nuances of all those things. God doesn't really know, you know, your estranged husband or wife as well as you do. God doesn't really know your children the way you do. So we don't trust Him fully in those areas because we think that somehow our knowledge of the situation and circumstance is going to be more useful. So we cling to, we cling to our solution. We cling to our way of doing it and we know there are things that God's called us to do and we don't say no we say I'll wait see when I'm done with this then I'll do that God when I fix this then I'll do that God which is basically saying to God you're a moron you don't know what's best for me that's what it's saying It's saying, God, you don't know all the circumstances. You don't know the test results. You don't know the dreams I have at night. You don't know and he says yes I do Yes, I do. I live in you. I know everything about you. Every thought and every intention. I was there for the creation of every molecule that's holding you together right now. I know what you're going through, he says. I know. And I love you. And I know how you failed me yesterday. And I even know how you're going to fail me today. But I love you. The question is not, are you going to fail? Are you going to make it? Are you going to figure all this out? I sat in my office yesterday and I said, God, how do I explain how absurd this is to me? This whole thing is just absurd to me. Somehow, I woke up one day and thought, yeah, that's what I want to do. I want to be your son. Then I want to realize how much I don't know about being a husband. Then I want to turn right around and multiply that by all that I don't know about being a father. Then I want to turn all that around and figure out what I don't know about being a teacher. And then if that's not enough, I want to heap up all these sheep on my back and start toting them across the way, trying to lead them to the good ground to eat. That's what I want to do, God. That's my idea. I came up with that. I thought that through. Don't you see? That's absurd. That's ridiculous. That's the goofiest thing I've ever heard of. 
didn't do that. I didn't have anything to do with that. And you say, well, he didn't do that to me. He did something. Because he didn't, he didn't slaughter his son, cover your sin with his blood, and then go, but you can just rest there for a while. He didn't just pay the highest price in the universe and say, well, it's okay. He's got something. And as soon as you say, but my thing's not as good as their thing, there we go again. Who's that voice coming from? That's not trusting God to live through you. What is he calling you to do? Meaning, what do you know today that God has said for you to do that you're not doing? That's all I'm saying. Just wake up and open your Bible. And before you read a word, say, God, is there something I already know that I'm not doing that I'm trying to put off? I'm trying to, I'm trying to hedge my bet. I find myself always reading the sections of scripture that might have a loophole that I'm looking for. said, no, you have a new authority. You have a new identity. You have a new ability. You have a new authority. And if it's not enough, you have a new security. Paul says, the Son of God who, who loved me and gave Himself for me. He... He's the son of God. He loved me. How how do I know he loved me? He gave himself for me. That as soon as you think the plan's going to fail, as soon as you think you've trailed off too far on a rabbit trail to come home, just stop for just a second and say, hold on, the son of God who loves me, how do I know? Because he died for me. That plan can't fail. Any other plan, I don't have security in. That plan cannot fail. It cannot fail. It absolutely cannot fail. Paul says in 1 Corinthians, he says to me, and he says to you what we so desperately need to hear. He says, do you not know that the unrighteous will not inherit the kingdom of God? Do you not know that? You feel the pressure? It's pushing down on you. Don't look at me, look at that. That question's for you. Do you know that? Are you unrighteous? What's going to happen to you when you die? What if today is your last day on this earth? Paul says, don't be deceived. Neither fornicators, idolaters, adulterers, homosexuals, or sodomites. Just go ahead and find your place in the list. Look at the ones that you condemn. Look at the ones that you're guilty of. And notice, they're all the same. They're all the same. He says, not thieves, not covetous, not drunkards, not revilers, not extortioners, not... Well, they won't inherit the kingdom of God either. Just start working the checklist. 
You feel it? You hear the voices. You know you don't measure up. Who are you trying to kid? All those secrets flying through your head right now. Of all your yesterdays. Oh, I know. Man, I've been sitting in church for 60 years. Mm-hmm. And you're right there in that list. And the scripture says you're not inheriting the kingdom of heaven. But then Paul says this. He says, and such were some of you. He's talking to people that are going to inherit the kingdom. And he, he laid out all the people that aren't coming. And then he said, but you know what? Some of them, some of those people, they, they used to be you. But they're not you. You know why? He says, because you were washed. You were washed. You were sanctified. You were set apart and cleansed. You've been cleaned. That you see, God took your dirty, perverse fornication, adultery, all your, your covetousness and your drinking and reviling and extortionists. He took all that and he bundled it all together. And then he cleansed it, washed it clean. Then he took the clean vessel and he set it up and put it aside and set it apart for a special purpose. It's now covered by the blood of his son. It's no longer in the pile that it used to be in with all those who will not inherit the kingdom of God. It's a new clean vessel. And then he says, but you were justified. You've been declared not guilty. You have been invited into the kingdom, into the family of God in the name of the Lord Jesus by the Spirit of our God. Listen to me. When the Bible says that those who are His are justified, what the Scripture means in no uncertain terms is that a saved person stands before God, number one, as if they have never sinned. Do you hear what I just said? You stand before God as if you have never sinned, never once, not transgressed any, zero, zip, zilch, nada, none. You have never sinned. That's your position before God, number one. But there's a number two. Justified means not only that you've never sinned, but it means that in the eyes of God, as He looks down at you, it's as if you have always obeyed. That you have done everything that has been asked of you. That you have always responded with, yes, God, no matter what the question is, no matter what the challenge is, you've, you've performed perfectly. You scored a hundred percent on your test. Now, where, where is the, where's the crack in that for condemnation to creep in? There's no, there's no way. How can a person who in the eyes of God 
has never sinned and always obeyed. You see, that's what it means that that He made Him who knew no sin to be sin for you, that you might be the... What did I say they were looking for in the Garden of Eden after sin came in? What did I say we're clamoring for when we're trying to prove ourselves and we're trying to achieve everything and we're trying to be all these things? It's righteousness. That's what we're trying to be, righteous. We know we're wrong. We know we need righteousness. We know we're out of sync with our Creator. We know something's broken, something's wrong. He said He made Him who knew no sin to be sin for you that you might be the righteousness of Christ, the perfect righteousness, not only the righteousness that never failed, but all always did the right thing. He was perfect in every way. There was no negative, no spot, no blemish. That's the righteousness you have today, right now, as a son or daughter of God, right now. Right now. Today. That's what it means to be redeemed. Now let's take our bitterness and our fear and our lust and our greed and all the other things that fit into our condemnation. And let's cast them out in the pit of lies where they belong. And let's understand that the only voice that matters said, you now come to me. You now come to me and you say, Abba, Father, Daddy, you've been redeemed, child. You've been redeemed. Walk in the power of the Spirit within you. Let's see victory because it's already been won. Let's stand, bow our heads, close our eyes. Father, we thank you this morning. We thank you, Lord, that somehow, some way, in some crazy turn of events, You allow people like us to be declared righteous. Father, I pray that this morning you will free us from the slavery of our imagination to the voices of this world that we can't measure up, we can't do, we can't go, we can't be, we can't speak. And Father God, that you will replace that with your voice that shouts like a megaphone of hope in our heart that we're more than conquerors in you, Lord. That no weapon formed against us shall prosper. That's the heritage of the people of the Lord. That greater is he who is in me than he who is in the world. That I have a new identity I am not who the world says that I am. I do not fight in my old ability. I'm not trying to become the person in the strength that I used to possess. But Lord, I have brand new ability.
Lord God, I'm secure in you because you loved me and gave your life for me. And Father, when this world is over, I have a new eternity. And I thank you for that, Lord, in Jesus' name. So call unto you all who are weighted down and burdened and heavy laden. Call them to the the foot of your cross, Lord, to be reminded of what you've already done in their life, Lord. God, bring victory and liberty to the captives this morning. Father God, help those who are in the sound of my voice, who don't know you as Lord and Savior, to come and, and realize the the glorious gift of justification that is only found in you. Father, we thank you. We thank you this morning in Jesus' name. Amen. You respond as God leads you. If you'd like to come and, and declare Christ as your Savior, you come, grab me or one of the pastors and we'll pray with you and hug you and be grateful with you if you'd like to come and plant your life in this church and say this is where God's called me to exist and to be and to grow and to learn and you come you come and we'll we'll help you with that if you just need prayer encouragement the altar's open you come we'll we'll receive you and love you and help you and guide you in whatever it is you're facing Something here has changed. I'm not sure what. But I want you to, I just want you to think for a moment. I wish I had time to tell you all the things I like to tell you about what's about to happen. But I don't. So I'll suffice it to say this. That many, many days in my life, I have woken up. And felt the pressure of all that was pressing down on me just like you do. And I've come to the scripture and I've made my way to Psalm 103. And I've, I've read a psalm by David that clearly was written by a person who is in such jubilation about the glory of God. And such he was so overwhelmed about what was going to be true In Galatians 2, what Paul was going to say, but it hadn't been fulfilled yet. But in his heart, he got it. And he realized that in every moment of every day, no matter what his enemies were doing, no matter the problems he had, no matter the failures that he suffered, no matter the disarray of his family, there was always a reason to praise God. And I can think of no better way to close this service and to end this series than by the declaration of this song. We worship you, Lord. You're holy and good and mighty and gracious. Only you, Lord. Only you. You could fill a choir loft, Lord, with... Failures and frauds, Lord. You could 
could put in every seat a reject, a loser, people who missed the mark. And you've washed them and cleansed them and redeemed them and sanctified them. And Lord God, you've set them apart. And Lord, now they can declare your holy name. They can worship your holy name. That the loudest voice, the voice from heaven declares, I am your father and I am well pleased with you. You are my son and my daughter. And we thank you and praise you this morning, Lord, for the glorious gift of your truly amazing grace. May we never, ever get over it. In Jesus' name I pray. Amen. I love you. You're dismissed.